Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. My guest today is Morten Nordhagen, who has written Union or Doom or Co-Britain, should I say which is about Scandinavianism in the 1860s. And we're, of course, going to talk a little bit about this later because it's such an essential part of Sweden-Norwegian history. Now, this is the second part of Sweden-Norway. You know, the first part we talked about from the 1840s and the 1850s, and we ended with the Marcus Train movement. And again, where nationalism began to take, take to play. But of course, as always... How did you come to study the, the second half of the 18th, 19th century Scandinavia? How did I come to study that? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, well, that's a good question. I started studying, uh, say, the, the, the latter part of the Swedish-Norwegian Union. And I suppose I backtracked from that. I, I wanted to explore the origins. So I went back to the beginning uh, which was obviously 1814 and the Napoleonic Wars. Uh, so I did my I did my PhD dissertation on that, the Napoleonic Wars and popular resistance in the Swedish-Norwegian borderlands. So I kind of got a, a framework for understanding the relationship between Sweden and Norway throughout that Union period from 1814 to 1905. And then obviously the I figured out that there was there was more to that than merely Sweden and Norway. There, there, there is a certain country to the south as well. And I happened to get acquainted with a Danish scholar, my my twin brother from another mother, as, as I call him, uh, Rasmus Glentai. And we we began, we wrote a book, that was a few years ago, on Which is Denmark. brilliant, by the way. Oh, thank you for that. Thank you for that. Uh, we hoped it would be. But, you know, mm-hmm. after having written such a book, you, you kind of grow tired of it. So I've never really, <laughs> I've, I've, I've never read that again. I'd rather <laughs> have my nose hairs pulled up with pliers than reading that again. But thank you. Uh, if, I, but, if I may but, add as well, I understand it's been translated into English right now and hopefully published sometime soon. It will. I think I would say early next year. Uh, on on Palgrave Macmillan, and there will be two volumes, uh, two standalone volumes. The first will uh, it will be called Scandinavia uh, and Napoleon, uh, and it will cover the years from about eighteen fourteen to eighteen fifty one. And then there is a second book which we which we, I'm not sure how we title that yet. I think it will be called Scandinavian Bismarck, and which will span the years from 1851 to 1871, which was obviously the, the year of German unification. So there will be a, quite a lot of Scandinavian history uh, right there, at least 
at least up until 1871. And then I suppose the, the logical next step would be to write a book of 1871 to 1905 or 1914, but we haven't thought that far yet. Hmm. I think we... I must say that was, that was a brilliant sales point about the book. <laughs> yeah, well, thank you. I, 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 what, what do they call it? Shameless self-plugging, yeah. I think they call it. So I got to put that in there. Yeah, uh, let's, so, let's begin with, at this point, in the 1850s, how close were the Union at this point? Of course, as we know, Oscar I, he took over Sweden, Norway, and we spoke a little bit about him by the end of last week's episode. But let's talk yeah. about how close were really the Union at this point. Uh, my answer to that is that the Union was closer than most people think. Uh, and, you know, that would probably surprise some people who, who are accustomed to the thought that, oh, it was just a personal union with Sweden and Norway bound together by the person of the king and so on and so forth. Uh, but you have to remember that the, they shared the foreign ministry, which was, that was institutional integration right there. And it was obviously dominated by the Swedes, which would become a problem later on, but we'll get back to that. Uh, there was, to a certain extent, a customs union. Uh, it wasn't all-encompassing, but it was in place. And, and, and uh, it, it was a legal framework for that. Uh, but come the 1850s, uh, that was probably the most harmonious decade of the Union, and it had quite a lot to do with, with the Scandinavianist movement, and we'll return to that as well, I think. But come the 1850s, they, you know, there was a Union committee that had been set up in 1844, and its mandate, if you like, was to sort of explore possible avenues of further integration. Now, it's, it, it sort of petered out uh, and I can't remember the year when the, the, their, their draft, if you like, when that was uh, submitted. But I think the Norwegians turned a little bit reluctant. It sort of pointed towards perhaps a little bit much, a much more closer union that the Norwegians would prefer. But in the 1850s, uh, partly as a result of the Scandinavianist movement, there were Norwegians, and quite influential Norwegians, who I wouldn't say that they necessarily wanted very close institutional integration, but they were open to the idea. So there were three committees set up in 1855 and 1856 to explore sort of a possible a possible expansion of the customs union. There was one committee set up to explore uh, a legal framework, an enhanced legal framework for the union. And perhaps the most important committee was to uh, set up to, to explore uh, military integration, military cooperation, rather. Uh, and all, all of these three uh, committees, you know, they worked for one or two years, and they too petered out into nothing, uh, which partly by coincidence, but partly because I think in certain respects they went a little too far, a little further than the Norwegians would prefer. But it goes to show that, you know, the workings of these three committees goes to show that the, there was quite a, a harmonious relationship between Norway and Sweden at that point. Although that is relatively speaking, because I think that says more about how framed that relationship was before the 1850s, and especially later on uh, from the 1860s and onward. 
But the 1850s, at that point, there was a very good chance that the, you know, that the union could have changed. Uh, but obviously, there was a certain conflict that cropped up towards the end of the 1850s. And there were new conflicts in the 1860s when once again, they tried to set up a committee to explore how they could make the union closer. There were talks of a, of a union parliament, for example. And that was... And that was an idea that at least the Swedes were very willing to, to consider it. Some Norwegians were willing to consider it. And it had everything to do with, with Scandinavianism. Uh, but as it happened, and we'll get back to this, I'm sure. But as it happened, Scandinavianism had uh, got into a few problems after Denmark's defeat in 1864. So that wave that the Swedish-Norwegian Union was riding as a result of Scandinavianism, that petered out as well. So instead, you know, there was a huge conflict between the Swedes and Norwegians over that particular union committee that was set up in 1865. And, uh, you know, the, what the Norwegians feared above all, I think that if the Norwegians, if it had been up to the Norwegians, they could have accepted a certain institutional framework for the union, but they tended to regard Sweden as the big brother. And they feared that Sweden would exploit any institutional framework to sort of uh, forge a national amalgamation, as they call it, of the two peoples. That, to, 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 put, to put it short, the, the Norwegians, they, they didn't really want to become Swedes, to put it that way. Uh, so I think, and there was obviously uh, some misconceptions involved, and I, I think the Norwegians, if I may say so, I think they were a bit xenophobic at, at some point. I have to I have to say the Swedes tried everything they could to reassure the Norwegians that, you know, we're not looking towards national amalgamation. Yeah, we're, we're just trying to put the union on a, on a sounder footing, if you like. So it, it's stranded on Norwegian resistance ultimately, but uh, that's not to say that all Norwegians were categorically against closer union. Hmm. If I may, and I don't know if taking this a bit far, but is it fair to compare Sweden, Norway to Austria-Hungary as some sort of kind of? You, you can do that, at least after, after 1867 with, with, um, with the, um, uh, the, the Kernish Lish and Kaiserlich, you know, when, when Hungary was recognized as a kingdom in its own right. Uh, I think you can compare it insofar as you have two largely independent states united within a rather loose framework. And you have uh, increasingly strong parliaments in both countries and increasingly self-conscious uh, political elite. Uh, and I think what, what distinguishes perhaps uh, the Norwegians from the Hungarians is that the, ultimately the Hungarians, they were slightly more loyal, I think, to the monarchy or to the dynasty than the Norwegians ultimately became to, to, to the Bernadotte dynasty. And I think that the damage was done by, by King Charles the 15th. Uh, and we can get into that now. It's, it's, it's quite nicely in here. The, co the conflict of the Viceroy, uh, which took place from 1859 to 1861. And this goes some way in explaining why these attempts 
as close the union failed as well. Now, when the union was established in 1814 and 1815, uh, with a sort of a common constitution in a sense, uh, the, uh, the office of the Viceroy was created in, in Christiania in Norway, which was supposed to serve as the head of the Norwegian government. And the, the union constitution stipulated that uh, this, the position as viceroy could be held by a Swede or a Norwegian. Uh, but obviously the Swedes wanted to keep, a, to keep a little control on the Norwegians. So for the first 15 years, uh, the viceroy was Swedish and the Norwegians resented that. So ultimately the, the Swedes uh, recalled uh, the viceroy in 1829 and the office uh, was, I think, vacated until 1836. And from then on, it was only held by Norwegians, or two Norwegians, to, 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 to be precise, uh, Ned Liasberg and, um, and Severin Löwenshov. Now, come the 1850s, there was a general agreement in Sweden and Norway that the, the, the office of the Viceroy had sort of served its purpose. It was no longer needed. So the Norwegians, they were pushing for, for the abolishment of that particular office because they felt as though that was sort of a symbolic... Uh, sort of a symbol of Swedish superiority or, or Swedish control over Norway. And it didn't really have a, any practical purpose anymore. And, in, you know, the Swedes, they, they basically agreed that, well, we can always abolish it. We just have to make sure that it's abolished in a proper way. So come the late 1850s, now this all started in 1857, I think, and ultimately the, the Norwegian parliament uh, decided in 1859 to abolish the office of the Viceroy, thinking that the Swedes would be okay with that. You know, they had sounded out the Swedish government and the Swedish government, bar one minister, were, were okay with it. So they thought that if we abolish this office now and the king have, has to sanction it, obviously, uh, then it, it will all be done. You know, we would get away with this symbolic thorn in the side, if you like, and we can perhaps commence uh, towards closer institutional integration in, in other matters. But what happened in Sweden was that, you know, there was an outburst of fury that the Norwegians had abolished this office uh, of the Viceroy unilaterally because they thought of it as a union matter. So they could agree to abolishing this office as long as they partook in the decision to do it. So there was an outburst of anger uh, in, the, in the Swedish parliament. Uh, the Swedish government uh, made an about turn. Uh, one of the ministers uh, in Sweden, uh, he was one of the two prime ministers in Sweden. Now, the Swedish government was a little complicated, but one of the prime ministers, uh, Louis de Yad, he had basically told the Norwegians that, well, I agree to this. Let, let's get it done. Uh, I support you. I'll talk to the parliament. We'll get this office abolished. But he made an about turn when he realized that the Swedish parliament wasn't all too happy with that, uh, which angered the Norwegians. But what angered them even more was the fact that the king, Charles XV, he had also promised the Norwegians that, well, we'll abolish this office, I'll sanction the decision by the Norwegian parliament, no problem. But he was forced by the Swedish parliament and more importantly, the Swedish government into making an about turn as well, a complete U-turn. So he was forced to telling the Norwegian that, well, I'm not going to sanction this decision after all. And you can imagine the Norwegian fury with, with Charles XV and obviously the Swedish government and the Swedish parliament. 
So it was to the detriment of the union, but but also to the detriment of the Norwegian loyalty, I think, to uh, to the to the dynasty and 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 the monarchy per se. So and I I don't think the monarchy ever recovered from that. I don't think the union ever recovered from that, and I don't even think Norway's relation to Sweden ever recovered from that. So that particular conflict. And it only spanned two years, but it had enormous repercussions uh, for, for the relationship between Norway and Sweden. And one Norwegian member of parliament, he even noted in his diary uh, when he realized that the Swedes were turning completely around on the matter, that you know the seeds of the dissolution of the union have, have been sown. And he was right, although it took 40, 45 years for the union to be dissolved. Now, of course, we going to stick to the 50s a little bit because there are a few more topics we need to discuss that's kind of important as a whole in here. But first, I want to start with as what for, what brought Sweden, no, sorry, Norway into Sweden as a union was, of course, the Kiel Treaty after the Napoleonic yes. Wars. But it, it did kind of become irrelevant later at, at this point in the 1850s, didn't it? Uh... Well, the treaty per se uh, became irrelevant, you could say that. But what you have to remember, and perhaps more importantly understand, is that now the Kiel Treaty was a lawful international treaty between Denmark and Sweden. Britain also partook in that, although through a different treaty. They had their own Treaty of Kiel. And at the Congress of Vienna, which ended the Napoleonic Wars, and we all know that, uh, the Kiel Treaty was included in the so-called Pinal Act of the Congress of Vienna. And that is enormously important because what they tried to do at Vienna, apart from ending the Napoleonic Wars, uh, was also to create some sort of international framework or framework for international politics to ensure stability for the next decades. I think, as with all major wars, the main quest uh, at Vienna was to avoid another war between the great powers because it was such so destructive. Just like the World Wars, Napoleonic Wars were, you know, were very much a world war. And to do that, they, they created a system. We can call it the Vienna system. And on the one hand, it included a balance of power between the great powers, uh, although not necessarily in the way it had been before, but there was a certain balance between them. But on the other hand, it also created a legal framework based on international law and international treaties. And the Treaty of Kiel was very much a part of that. Uh, so that was used as sort of a, I wouldn't say a constitution, but as a, as a legal framework for international relations. And you could, one effect of that was when when uh, the, the Danish-Norwegian national debt after the Napoleonic Wars uh, was to be settled in 1816, 1817. Uh, the, the Norwegians refused to pay their part. And the Swedes supported Norway in that, saying that, you know, we, we, uh, we don't feel as though Norway owes Denmark anything. Uh, but the problem for, for Norway and Sweden was that the Treaty of Kiel explicitly said that Norway is to pay its share of the Danish national debt. So obviously the Danes complained to the great powers and the great powers intervened and basically told the Norwegians and the Swedes that Norwegians were supposed to pay anyway. 
And that's how it went. But it was a sort of a reminder of how this international system worked. And this, and to get to my point here, this international system was very much in place until the Crimean War in the mid-1850s. That war shattered this system because obviously three powers went to war with each other. But up until 1853, 1854, this international system very much existed. So the, the, the Treaty of Kiel would be a point of reference in a sense. It was never evoked after the debt issue from 1816 to 1821 when it was resolved, but it was very much a part of that international legal framework. So say if you, in, in a counterfactual scenario, if the, if the Norwegians had tried to break out of the Union with Sweden in, say, 1848 during the revolutions, if things had gone otherwise, I am fairly sure that the great powers would have intervened and in direct reference to the Treaty of Kiel, told the Norwegians in no uncertain terms that they had to remain in the union with Sweden. So, so, so I, don't, I wouldn't say that the Treaty of Kiel became uh, irrelevant uh, because it still existed as a part of the international framework, legal framework, uh, but it was not something that was referred to on a day-to-day -day basis, obviously. But it was sort of a the groundwork for the union. It was basically the document which said that Norway and Sweden are to be united, which was very important from an international perspective. But obviously, all that changed with the Crimean War. And of course, let's talk about the Crimean War because it did also, and we thought about this offline as well, off the record, it did have a massive impact on Scandinavian history as well, though we did not partake in the Crimean War with the great powers, it didn't mm. have, a, it did. We did feel the effect of the Crimean War ourselves. Well, we felt the impact of it to a certain extent, but it, it that the, not not as much as we could have. Let me put it that way. Uh, now, 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 the Crimean War is uh, is a very complicated war, which is probably why some historians have sort of shied away from it. Uh, but it was a war between France and Britain on the on the one hand, and Russia on the other. We know we know as much. But the question, obviously, is if if you are France and Britain, and you have gone to war with Russia, uh, albeit over the Ottoman Empire, uh, questions related to that, uh, it is granted that the that the Black Sea will play a part in that war, and it did. But the question for 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 France and Britain was rather how can we wage war with Russia? How do you wage war with Russia? And perhaps more importantly, where do you do it? And if, you, if, if your intention, and that was very much the intention of the Western powers, if, if you want to deal Russia a very heavy, if not decisive, military blow, you don't necessarily uh, attack the Crimea. Mm. You have to attack elsewhere. So the, so the initial idea... Uh, was to uh, attack uh, Russia from the east, that is from the Baltic Sea. But to stage military operations from the Baltic Sea, you need uh, obviously naval bases, uh, you need uh, uh, supplies, and you need a, so, some cooperation uh, with the regional powers, which is where Sweden, Norway and Denmark uh, came into play. And what the Allies tried to do was basically to court Sweden and Norway and Denmark uh, into 
the, the military operations against Russia in the Baltic Sea. To put, to put it very easily, France and Britain wanted the Crimean War to be fought in the Baltic region. Uh, we, so they tried to court Sweden and Norway. They bombarded uh, Bumarsson on the Orland archipelago, uh, staged operations in the Baltic Sea sort of to impress Sweden and Norway to join the war. And the thing was that the, 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 the Swedish Norwegian, Norwegian king, Oscar I, he was very interested. He was planning all the way to join that war. Uh, but he was very careful. Uh, the liberals in Sweden, they were desperate to join the war. You know, they really wanted to, to fight Russia once and for all. Uh, some Norwegians, too, were very ready to join that war. And in Denmark, the, Denmark was very reluctant for various reasons. But Denmark knew that if Sweden and Norway joined into that war on the side of the Allies, Denmark would have to follow. There would be no other option but for Denmark to follow Sweden-Norway into that war. And it was very close. Uh, but what a part of that, and I think this is where, this is where, this is the legacy, the, the, the historiographical legacy of the Crimean War in Scandinavia is that there was a bellicose Swedish and Norwegian king, Oscar I, uh, who was held back by his sensible ministers from entering into that war. And as a result, Sweden and Norway's history was put on its proper course, which is peace, neutrality, democracy, and so on and so forth, which is, it isn't untrue, but it, it's blatantly disregards that there were, there were more forces than the king who wanted to join into that war. And it also disregards how Denmark knew that if Sweden and Norway joined the Crimean War, entered into it, they would have to, have to follow. And the objective, obviously, for... For the Danish liberals, the Danish liberal opposition at the time, many Swedish liberals and quite a few Norwegians as well, what they realized, and above all, what Oscar I realized, was that if Sweden, Norway and Denmark joined the Crimean War in the Baltic on the side of the Allies, that would most likely turn into a Scandinavian war of unification. That was the aim of Oscar I. Uh, so... It, was a, it could have been a way to establish a united Scandinavia on the one hand, also obviously to, to, to reconquer Finland from Russia, but perhaps more importantly, deal a decisive military blow to Russia, perhaps push Russia back in some respect uh, and, and thereby acquire a certain security. And it got as far in, in 18, late 1855, uh, it got as far as Sweden and Norway entering into a treaty of integrity with France and Britain, which, which was perceived and intended as a first step towards an offensive military alliance. Um, and if I ask, were they, were they hoping to regain Finland as well if they were to join the war against Russia? Were they hoping that maybe we could get back to our Finnish province as absolutely. well? As absolutely, that was part of that, but it wasn't. Well, it was as far as as far as Oscar and the Swedish liberals were concerned, it was a win-win situation because they could, on the one hand, they could reconquer Finland, and on the other hand, that Finland would be joined to the Scandinavian Union. That was an integral part of the Scandinavianism at the time in the mid 1850s. So the idea was to establish a 
uh, a united Scandinavia of four states, Denmark, Norway, Sweden, and Finland. So that very much played a part in that. And it got very close. It got extremely close. And Austria as well was on the verge of joining the Crimean War. Uh, and the Austrians issued an ultimatum to Russia in early 1856. And nobody really thought that the, uh, that the Russians or, the, or Tsar Alexander II would cave in. Uh, but I think if, if you look at it from the, from the Swedish-Norwegian perspective, the problem was that the Tsar held his hands up and said that, well, I agree to peace negotiations. Uh, and the King Oscar I had not expected that at all. He had expected to join the war in the spring of 1856. Uh, the Britain wanted to, to, to continue the war into 1856, launch a major operation against St. Petersburg, and obviously with the, with the Austrian army through Galicia and into the Ukraine and into Belarus. Uh, but the Russians caved in. They held their hands up and, and basically told that, well, we agreed to peace negotiations. We'll do what you want. And that was, that was an enormous problem to, to, to Sweden and Norway, because on the one hand, what Oscar I had done, he had antagonized Russia. The Russians were perfectly aware that he had been very close to joining a war against Russia. But on the other hand, he had nothing to show for it. There was no Scandinavian Union. He hadn't reconquered Finland. Uh, Russia wasn't decisively defeated in military terms. So Oscar would have to count on having a hostile Russia as a neighbor, as a virtual neighbor, and without, you know, without any security arrangement to make up for that. This treaty of integrity with France and Britain, that was of questionable value, to put it mildly. Uh, it, it still existed, but the question was, what would France and Britain do in the event of a Russian attack on Sweden and Norway? No one knew. Uh, so he had an enormous problem after that. So what he tried to do even more intensely than ever before after the, the Crimean War was to unite Scandinavia. That really became a, an imperative goal uh, for King Oscar I. Uh, but his problem, again, was that he, he, uh, he developed brain cancer in the, in the spring of 1857, and he was incapacitated uh, in the summer of 1857. So he couldn't really pursue that. He was unable to. And his, his son and successor, who was crowned King Charles XV in 1859, he was an avid uh, Scandinavianist as well, but he, he didn't possess the qualities of his father, to put it that way, the political qualities, the, 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 pol the political fingerspitzgefühl, as, as the Germans would say, or let alone the authority. So, so of course, as we, we teased it so far, but let's go dive more into Scandinavianism. And I do hope that I make an episode about this one day, hopefully soon, I hope. But, you know, it's such a fascinating topic. And like you said, we were really close. And there were pe mm. people in government as well who mm. were interkeen on uniting Scandinavia as a three-part union. So let's talk about how Scandinavianism blossomed and how it came to be. Yeah, well, it, it started, if, if, if you look at Scandinavianism as an ideol, ideology, 
and a political movement. It sort of emerged in the late 1830s, late 1840s. There had been attempts uh, and even very close attempts at that during the the Napoleonic Wars to unite Scandinavia through that dynastic arrangement and even before that in the 1740s. But come the 1830s and 40s, there emerged a sort of a cultural movement uh, which... uh, it wasn't necessarily political to begin with, but it embraced the idea of some sort of cultural communality between the Scandinavian countries in terms of language, uh, customs, religions, literature, and so on and so forth. And it was very much a student uh, movement, uh, an academic movement, if you like. But come the 1840s, it turned more political. Uh, it embraced the idea of liberal constitutional reform in Sweden and Denmark. It was, in fact, it became a vehicle for constitutional reform in Sweden and Denmark because the idea was that if if Scandinavia was somehow united, either through a dynastic arrangement or by some other arrangement, it would it would necessitate a constitutional rearrangement. And it, as far as the, the way the Scandinavianists understood that is that, well, if, if we need a new constitution, it might as well be liberal. So Scandinavianism, on the one hand, became a vehicle for, for constitutional reform. And obviously the Norwegians, they already had their own constitution. They didn't really need that, but it served as a model for the Swedes and the Danes. So, so their argument was that let's unite Scandinavia to, to, to acquire a Norwegian constitution for all of Scandinavia. To, to, to put it a little, a little bluntly. So that was one part. The other part was fairer Russia. Russia was yeah. autocratic, reactionary. Tsar Nikolai I, who was, you know, the, the, the gendarme of Europe. Uh, so there was an element of uh, resistance towards Russia, if you like. And there was also uh, Denmark's conflict with uh, the German states, the German con- confederation over the 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 the, the Duchy of Schleswig. Now we can we can spend half a day talking about the Schleswig issue, and we we won't do that. <laughs> but to, unfortunately, the, we don't have time this at that episode. No, we don't. So, <laughs> so I'll try. So I'll try to be quick. Now that the Schleswig was basically a duchy, which was uh, in ethnic terms, it was fifty percent. German speaking, 50% Danish speaking. And at this point in time, say the 1830s and 40s, you know, this was when modern nationalism started to emerge. So the idea of connecting language to nationality, you know, that started to gain foothold. It's it's kind of an early version of self-determination, if you will. Yes, yes. Uh, Yeah, in a sense, only that, you know, the Schleswigers themselves weren't necessarily too sure what they wanted, but that's another matter. Uh, Bismarck knew. Ultimately, Bismarck knew. Well, you know, he didn't necessarily know either. We'll get back to that. Uh, But the thing was, and I'll be be short, it led to, to a conflict between Denmark and the German Confederation that was very much national in kind. And on the one hand, it, you, you can look at it as a sort of a Danish national chauvinistic uh, effort to acquire the Dutch of Schleswig, which, which was a Dutch in its own right. It wasn't really part of the Kingdom of Denmark to, in technical terms. Uh, but it was also a question of, well, if 
if the German Confederation or a future united Germany acquire the Duchy of Schleswig, what will happen to the Danish-speaking population and vice versa? What will happen with the German-speaking population if Schleswig was joined to a Danish nation-state? And that was obviously a moot point. But on the part of the Danes, and you know, this is, I don't, I don't think this has been properly understood by historians. Uh, what the Danes, I don't think they were that chauvinistic, but they, they were fearing that their their nation uh, would uh, would be annihilated, uh, because what they saw was that you know that the German language was creeping north through Schleswig. It was ex expanding almost by the year. And uh, an integral part of 19th century nationalism was what, uh, what the historian Eric Hobsbawm has termed the threshold principle, which was the idea that in order to be a nation state, you had to be of a certain size in, in geographic terms, demographic terms, economic terms, military terms, and even political terms. If and, I may, if I may. As a, and I'm going to compare this to the later Balkans wars with the, with the Ottoman Empire, where you see Muslims and Greeks, you know, mass yeah. mi migrating between both Greece and the Ottoman Empire. Did, did they fear there would be kind of this the same? Oh, of course, that, that would happen later, but did, did they fear that there would be kind of mass migration as well of Danes coming into Denmark and, you know, Germans <laughs> switching side into them? into Germany, did a fair, fair was, was there a fear of mass migration as well? No, I don't think that. I think the fear was that the, that the Germans, if they acquired the whole of Schleswig, that, you know, the road would lay open for, for Germany to acquire Jutland as well and Germanize the Danes there. Hmm. And if Germany acquired Schleswig and Jutland, well, what would be left of Denmark then? Hmm. Two small islands, basically, in, in the Kattegat. So the Danes feared that, you know, and you know, the idea was that nations either they expanded or they would go under. There was sort of a Darwinist approach to this, although that became much more prominent later. So what the when when the Danes or the Danish nationalists anyway, when they were looking at Germany, they were seeing a, a lethal threat to their nationality, and Schleswig became the battlefield for that. And it, it was basically where the Danish liberal nationalists, they drew a line in the sand in Schleswig, saying that, I think the argument was Denmark to the River Eider, which separated Schleswig from, from Holstein, which was an all-German duchy. And the, the Danes or the Danish nationalists, anyway, they would happily leave Holstein to the German Confederation. Uh, they had no problem with that, but they wanted to retain Schleswig. And, you know, that was very complicated with the question of did Schleswig and Holstein belong together and all that. But we won't get into that. Uh, but the Danes, they were they were genuinely fearing for their national existence. And they were thinking in terms of Schleswig as crucial to their size, if you like. But even more so, they were thinking in terms of Scandinavian unification as making sense through this prism of the threshold principle. And that, that's exactly what the, the Norwegian Scandinavianists and the Swedish Scandinavianists were thinking as well. Their idea was that as, as separate states, if you like, that Denmark, Sweden and Norway, individually, they were too small to be nation states. But that Scandinavia, a united Scandinavia, would make perfect sense. 
And, and what must be remembered is that this line of thinking, the threshold principle, uh, you know, the, the, the idea that size matters, that was very prominent in, in, in European national thought from especially the 1850s. But it was also an integral part of, of international politics after the Crimean War. And it, you know, it, it is it is no coincidence that you you got the Italian and German wars of unification in that period. On the one hand, because the breakdown of the international system allowed for these kind of wars, but on the other hand, the very idea of national unification as a matter of size. Uh, so that was very integral to to this Scandinavianist ideology, its political side, if you like, in addition to its cultural side. And it started, as I said, it started as a liberal movement, but then obviously Denmark uh, acquired a, a, a liberal constitution in 1849. And the question of Swedish constitutional reform had basically been launched in 1844-45, although it would linger on until 1865-66. But after, after, after the revolutions in Europe in 1848-49, that... The, the liberal the liberal aspect of Scandinavianism had in one way uh, run its course, uh, although I would say the liberals remained a dominant force within the Scandinavianist movement. But what happened was that the, the movement was joined by uh, conservative, deeply conservative aristocrats in Sweden. Uh, and they were they tended to regard Scandinavianism as Swedish expansionism, but that's a whole other matter. And it was also joined by Danish Democrats uh, who who didn't much like the Danish liberals in political terms, but at least they could unite behind the idea that Scandinavian unification was imperative to the survival of Danish nationality to prevent Denmark from becoming German, if you like. And this, Throughout the 1850s, the, the, the movement acquired support in Swedish, Norwegian, and Danish government circles as well. And that is perfectly understandable because those who manned the government offices and the bureaucracy, even military uh, positions in the three countries in the 1850s and 60s, they were the same students who had toasted to Scandinavianism in the 1840s. So that's no surprise at all, and uh, and obviously the the, the royal houses, uh, the King Oscar the first, as I mentioned, is is his his son Charles the fifteenth. They embraced Scandinavianism partly from ideological concerns, partly from dynastic ambition, and um, and the the King of Denmark, Frederick the seventh, he embraced Scandinavianism. Now he was a Pitiful figure, I have to say, uh, an alcoholic in poor health. Uh, but the problem for Denmark was that after the, the first Schleswig War in 1848-51, and we don't have time to get into that, but after that war, the, the question of Danish succession uh, was, was resolved, or at least resolved by treaty, uh, by intervention from the great powers. What they did was, well, Frederick VII, uh, he was childless, and although he was 40, 45 years of age, it was a general agreement that he would never have children, which which goes 
Well, it does. It does suggest quite a lot about his health, doesn't it? Uh, but everyone knew that he. I mean, I mean have... to be fair, though, Mick Jagger's recently got got a kid that is like yeah, eight. Sorry, Robert De Niro, I think, recently got a kid that is eight to seven now. So. I I yes I see I I get your point uh but I I I don't think Robert De Niro or or anyone else has ever drunk as much alcohol <laughs> as King Frederick the Seventh. Uh, I don't know I'm, uh, I'm not. Uh... <laughs> he was he was uh and he he was a pitiful figure. Uh I I came across at one point a note from um a Norwegian general serving in the court of Charles the 15th and he met with Frederick the 7th several times in the in the early 1860s and he was basically courting Frederick the 7th to basically hand his crown over to the Bernadotte dynasty but the note from the Norwegian general said that uh, the, the the Danish king is mad he he sits and he drinks he gets so drunk that he pisses himself uh, no one understands what he's saying And there was even a diplomatic crisis at some point uh, because Frederick the Seventh he got so drunk uh, that his 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 face turned purple, and the Swed you know the, the the Swedish diplomats they they were and this happened in Sweden when he was visiting Sweden, and the Swedish diplomats they they were desperate because if if Frederick the Seventh died under mysterious circumstances on Swedish soil everyone would think that the Swedes had killed him. For the Bernadots to acquire the Danish throne, so but such such was Frederick the Seventh that that he he basically drank himself to death, which was a disaster for Denmark, uh, believe it or not. But what happened was that the great powers basically agreed that his successor would be Prince Christian of Glücksburg, who was a German-speaking uh, relative and a German-minded relative of the Danish king. And what the Danish liberals and the Danish uh, Democrats realized, and the Danish Scandinavians above all, was that as soon as he became king, there would be no question of a dynastic union of Scandinavia. So they were desperate to solve this issue while Frederick the Seventh was still alive. So that is really the story of the this, the, the dynastic aspect of Scandinavianism, and there were. There were many different ideas as to how Scandinavia would look in terms of would it be a confederation, a federation, a loose union. There were all kinds of ideas in place, but everyone agreed that for for it to work, for it to be accepted by the great powers, it would have to be a monarchy. So you would have to have a king and a dynasty, and everyone sort of agreed that it would have to be the Bernadots. But the question was how? What do you do with Prince Christian of Glücksburg, the heir to the Danish throne? Who the great powers have basically installed as the heir to the Danish throne? How do you pay him off? How do you get rid of him? And how do you get this arrangement in place before Frederick the Seventh dies? Because it was apparent to all that he he wouldn't live long. So there was a sense of urgency as well to the Scandinavianist movement. And, uh, uh, let, and I want to discuss a little bit alternative history here. As you mentioned, Charles the Fifteenth wasn't. As powerfully influenced as Oscar the mm. First were, so let's say Oscar the First was still king. Is there any chance this could have been successful at all if he had still been in power? Yes, I think it would, uh, and it was very close. Uh, and uh, well, we don't have time to go into the details, but if if you look at the 
if you look at the bigger picture of Scandinavianism, there were certain crossroads where individual decisions mattered. And sometimes individual decisions would be made by pure coincidence, uh, or there would be an intervention, an unexpected intervention, by pure coincidence that would serve as a stumbling stone for, for Scandinavianism. One such was in the spring of 1857, when, uh, when King Oscar I offered a military alliance to Denmark. And he was obviously looking, to, he was looking towards the Danish throne and Scandinavianism and all that. But his idea was that the road to unification went through a military alliance with Denmark to sort of deter Germany, or if need be, fight a war with Germany over Schleswig. He was open to that. He almost joined the first Schleswig War in 1848. Uh, so he offered a military alliance to Denmark. And uh, the drunken Frederick VII of Denmark, he received this offer, and he sat with the document before him. He was probably not sober, but he wrote, he drafted a reply basically agreeing that, well, I accept the terms. I, I see that Holstein, the Duchy of Holstein, is explicitly excluded from the terms of the alliance, which means that part of the Danish state wasn't included in the terms of the alliance. But he accepted that. I, uh, he, he, Frederick was caught between two minds. On the one hand, he wanted to retain you know, the entire state, including its German parts. But on the other hand, he was sympathetic to the idea of nationalism, Danish nationalism, Scandinavianism. So he was always caught between two minds, drunken or not. But he was about to accept the alliance, and he could as king. That was well within his powers to do so. Because as, as we discussed, they were in the road to constitution and monarchy, and it kind of were at this point, but uh, they did still have, but, the kings had certain power, it wasn't the, the constitution had their, monarchy that we know today, of course. It, yes, it was, it was a constitutional monarchy, but the king in Denmark and Sweden and Norway wielded uh, relatively broad powers over foreign policy in particular. Mm. They would have to consult their ministers, but if their ministers or their answers didn't please them, they could rid themselves of their ministers and find someone else. And this was exactly, well, it was almost what Frederick VII had done at that point, at that precise point when he was sitting there at his desk reading the offer from King Oscar I. The, the, the Danish government had resigned. Uh, there was no, no new government in place. So the king had to consult his previous foreign minister, uh, who happened to be a friend and who was born in Holstein. And he read this document, the, 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 the offer of an alliance, and obviously the first thing he saw was that, well, it excludes Holstein. It will mean the, it will spell the end for the Danish unitary state, as it was called. So he basically told the king that, well, you have to reject this. And then the king did. And just a few weeks after that, uh, Oscar uh, succumbed to his brain tumor and, and, and Charles took over. Now, the thing with Oscar I, to, to, to play on your counterfactual line of argument here, <laughs> the, the big difference between Oscar I and his successor, or his two successors, uh, Charles XV and Oscar II, was that Oscar I had complete control over his Swedish government. He had absolute control over it. He could control his ministers at any time. And if his ministers didn't please him, he would replace them. 
Uh, and, and truth to be told, he was under extreme pressure uh, towards the end of the Crimean War and especially after when his policy had failed. Uh, and there, were, uh, there was one minister in particular in Sweden who was absolutely determined to sort of reduce royal powers and sort of make the constitutional monarchy even more constitutional, if you like. And, and uh, obviously Oscar I could, to a certain extent, handle this minister, but Charles XV couldn't. And what was worse, he couldn't get rid of him either. Uh, so that was a problem for Charles the, the, the XV. But even with Charles the XV, uh, there was still the chance that if, Sweden and Norway either entered into a military alliance with Denmark, uh, which could serve as a building block for a union, or perhaps more crucially, went to war alongside Denmark against Germany over Schleswig. That would very well turn into, into a Scandinavian war of unification. And that was, that was almost what happened uh, in 1864 with the outbreak of the, of the Dano-German war over Schleswig that year. And uh, what, what happened was that there was a, a, a treaty of alliance in place, and it had been, it started as a, it started as a royal affair in a sense. It was Frederick VII, uh, drunk as always, uh, met with Charles XV, and they agreed to a treaty. And they had done that multiple times before, but each time Charles XV had returned to Stockholm with any such document or idea, it had been shot down by his foreign minister. But at this point, and this was in the summer of 1863, his foreign minister, uh, Ludwig Mandelström, he realized that there, there was no going back. He had to agree to the treaty, and he met with the Danish prime minister, uh, Carl Christian Hall in Copenhagen, they negotiated the final details uh, of the treaty. And it was, it was very much in place. The only thing that, that, that was still to be done was ratification. And as you know, no treaty is valid until it has been ratified. Now, the way treaties uh, were ratified uh, in, in, in the Swedish-Norwegian Union was that the king and his foreign minister and one other member of the Swedish government would have to agree to the treaty. If they did, it was ratified. It was, it, it was not put before the parliament or, or anything such like. It was up to the government. But the problem for, for King Charles was, uh, uh, shall we say, rather reluctant Swedish uh, Minister of Finance, uh, Johann August Griepenstedt was his name. He got wind of what was happening. So he rallied the other members of government and put up a bit of resistance. So while at the same time, Denmark and the German Confederation, spearheaded by Prussia, was heading towards war in, in the autumn of 1863, the Swedish government was dragging its feet uh, the treaty wasn't ratified. It wasn't rejected either, but it wasn't ratified. Uh, and amidst all that, King Frederick VII died in November 1863, which obviously threw that whole dynastic issue up in the air. And then on the 1st of February, the war broke out without the treaty being in place, without the dynastic issue having been resolved. Mm. Uh, 
So as things happened, to put it short, uh, Denmark went to war alone. Uh, but it was very close. If Frederick VII had lived a little longer, uh, if, uh, if perhaps the Swedish and Norwegian foreign minister had been a bit more persuasive, if Charles XV had been a bit more persuasive, you know, that treaty would have been put into effect. And even during the war, there were, there were attempts at, at, at establishing a union, secret negotiations between the courts in Denmark and, and, and Stockholm, uh, the governments were more or less aware of what was going on. Uh, it was very close. And even after the war in Denmark was defeated and they lost the Dutch of Schleswig, even then, uh, Danish uh, Scandinavianists, they were conspiring and planning revolution in Denmark to get rid of the new King Christian, to install King Charles as King of Denmark and bring about the Scandinavian Union. And they sent two concrete plans for revolution directly to King Charles XV in Stockholm, which basically told him in no uncertain terms that uh, we are planning revolution, and once it happens, the throne is all yours. And, uh, well, no one knows what Charles XV were thinking about that, but I, I, I would be inclined to think that he would, he would play along with that if it happened. And what is more... The, the Danish Scandinavianists, they sent agents to France and to Prussia. Uh, one of their agents, he, agents, he met with Bismarck uh, in Berlin in late 1864. And Bismarck told him that, well, I would happily accept a Scandinavian Union. No problem with me. You can even have part of Schleswig back. But I want this united Scandinavia uh, to be uh, allied to Prussia. That is my condition, my term, if you like. And, you know, that was, a, that was a sour pill to swallow for the Scandinavians because they were hostile to, to, to Prussia and the German Confederation. But they got to the point where they would accept that. Uh, and Bismarck, he needed, as he saw it at that point, he needed a Scandinavian ally against Russia because he was planning a war with Austria and he would need to keep Russia in check. And he, he was thinking that, well, he could do that through a united Scandinavia. But what Bismarck did instead was to ensure that partly through the Polish rebellion in 1863 and how we handled that, partly through diplomatic negotiations, he basically ensured that Russia would keep quiet by himself. He didn't really need Scandinavia for that, ultimately. So when the Austro-Prussian War broke out in, in the summer of 1866, it had gone to the point that Bismarck... He, he didn't eagerly send uh, a, a, a telegram to Stockholm saying that I want a United Scandinavia now, I'll support it. He didn't really need that anymore. But he needed that, as he saw it in 1864 and 1865. So there was still a chance even then. Now, it was very close, I have to say. Uh, it was all determined by coincidence, ultimately. And even you had this, as I mentioned, uh, the question of, of Swedish constitutional reform that was also tied to Scandinavianism. The idea, as Charles XV saw it, he was, he was rather reactionary or conservative in political terms, and he didn't really want constitutional reform. But he got the impression from his government that, well, if he agreed to constitutional reform in Sweden, they would agree to Scandinavian unification. But obviously what happened was that once Charles XV had agreed to Swedish constitutional reform that was put into place uh, 
the Swedish government basically went back on their promise of Scandinavian unification. And that happened at the same time as the Austro-Prussian War. So you can basically date the end of political Scandinavianism to about the 2nd of July, 1866, which was... I'm sorry, when you changing your mic a little bit, the sound changed. There you sorry. Go. That's fine. Uh, Perfect. I almost lost my airplug. Yeah, sorry about that. That's fine. But I, something, what I want to ask, mention as well, you mentioned the reunification of Italy and the Garibaldi and Cavour. And the, yes. what I would say is one of the most important arguments in your book that, that you write about is why the union failed is because Scandinavia didn't have... They were all kind of had a Cavour, but they didn't... He didn't. We didn't really have a cover like to reunify Scandinavia. I think that you know this. It is. It isn't necessarily our most important argument, but I think it. It, it goes to show that individuals do matter in history. I think that is the point which I would like to stress, and you can see that with cover. You can see that with Bismarck. Uh, I, I think those those two were such prominent. Statesman and politician are so skilled as well at the art of the art politics that they could carry it through. And I don't think the Scandinavianist movement ever acquired any politician of such, if not talent, then at least influence. They never got to that point. And there were there were many who styled themselves as Cavours and Bismarcks and many who were many who were perceived as potential Cavours of Bismarck, but ultimately no Scandinavian politician were of that caliber uh, in the end. Uh, that, 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 that does not explain uh, the, the demise or failure of Scandinavianism per se, but it, it, it did play into it. And obviously uh, King Victor Emmanuel of, of, of uh, Piedmont and later Italy and and even King uh, King Wilhelm of uh, of uh, of Prussia, they were of another caliber than than say Charles the Fifteenth and his drunk counterpart Frederick the Seventh. There's no question about that. Uh, so they, they had um, the there was a, a problem of personnel, as as I put it, that they, they lacked key figures, but there were there were also structural barriers, I'd say. Uh, to a certain extent, but there were structural barriers in Germany and Italy as well. Uh, I mean, the unification of Italy required not only a war with, with, with Austria, it also required a civil war that went on for several years, even putting down a rebellion in, in southern Italy. And in Germany, too, that, that also required a civil war, as some framed it, you know, the Austro-Prussian War, which also included quite a few German uh, states that were annexed uh, to Prussia. So it was, it was a very difficult process there as well. And it would have been in Scandinavia too. But I think what, what happened, what, what the Italians and the Germans or the Prussians perhaps rather ultimately succeeded in doing was establishing the United Italy and Germany in the first place. And then once you have that in place, you can figure out what to do with it. And Scandinavia never got that far, but it was very close. There could have been, for example, a dynastic union it would have required a tremendous amount of work to put that into any form of functional union. But at least you would have the framework there. 
and you can see what happened with it. You can try and mold it into something. Uh, but they never got that far. So I think that is the crucial difference mm. between Scandinavia and, and Italy and Germany. But that being said, uh, Scandinavian unification was no less likely that, than Italian and German unification. The only difference is that it didn't happen, really. Um, of course, as you know, it's part of the German unification under Bismarck, but what would the Charles XIII's policy be towards Prussia and as for forming as a new great power of Europe? Yeah, uh, yeah, Charles the Fifteenth. Yeah, well, we know as much because he he's he he survived to see Germany united, uh, mm. and uh, and uh, I think that uh, he was very ambivalent. Uh, what must be remembered is that Charles the Fifteenth, especially. And, and uh, to a certain extent, his younger brother, Oscar, Oscar II, they were Francophile when they visited Queen Victoria in uh, 1861 on the Isle of Wight. You know, the Queen Victoria noted in her diary that, oh, they are so Francophile. I don't trust them because she didn't really trust Napoleon III. And she thought that they were basically in his pocket. And they were to a certain extent. But Charles the Fifteenth, after after Prussia had beaten Denmark and after Prussia had had beaten Austria, he had to he had to reconsider his stance on Prussia. Ultimately, he ended up supporting France. Uh, he he's he sort of clung on to his idea of France as Europe's leading power, and he was embarrassed during the Franco-Prussian War because he wrote a letter to uh, a, a French prisoner of war. In, uh, in Germany or in Prussia, uh, and the letter was intercepted. And the letter from Charles was, it was full of praise for France. He described how he was hoping France would win the war and so on and so forth. And, and obviously that caused a bit of a diplomatic stir. So what we do know is that Charles XV, he supported France. He never sort of left that Francophile inclination that he had, or conviction, uh, rather. Oscar II, he changed his mind. He was Francophile, but after, after Prussia's or Germany's victory uh, in 1870-71, he realized that Germany was the leading continental European power and by far the strongest military power uh, in continental Europe. So uh, he basically reconsidered, changed his mind completely. But there was also something else to that, and, uh, and this plays into the Scandinavianist movement as well. Now, Oscar II, he was an avid Scandinavianist, like his brother, uh, Charles XV. Uh, Oscar II, he was even, he was even privy to, to these uh, revolutionary plans and conspiracies. He was, I would go as far as to say that he was, he was a part of that. Uh, he knew about what was happening for sure. Uh, so, but part, you know, it's with Scandinavianism, obviously Germany took a lot of attention there, uh, at least until 1864, but the Scandinavianists, they were equally afraid of Russia and they were afraid of pan-Slavism. And after 1871, what made Oscar change his stance on Germany was the idea that, well, Germany as the new great power in Europe and Scandinavia, uh, they should uh, stand together against pan-Slavist Russian 
expansionism threats. And this was at the time where more and more people were starting to think that, well, Russia is bent on expansion. Uh, they Many people were, were absolutely convinced that Russia would try and expand to the Atlantic Sea, uh, which, which would be obviously be at the expense of Sweden and Norway. So, so Oscar II's idea was that with the, with the military might of Germany and the, and the uh, well, he was using the word race. He was thinking in terms of the Germanic race, as uh, so the Scandinavians and the Germans as part of the, of, of the same race. So he was thinking in racial terms of, 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 of uh, sort of a German-Scandinavian racial brotherhood against Pan-Slavism. And, and, and Russia in particular. So that very much guided his view or foreign policy approach right up to the, the dissolution of the Swedish-Norwegian Union. And obviously that sort of spent, spelt the end of his Scandinavianism as well, because the Danes weren't too happy with his change of mind uh, towards I Germany. Mean, obviously. Obviously. After you've, you've been spanked by Germany once, you don't, you don't really embrace those who embrace no. Germany, to put it that way. So that that sort of ended uh, Oscar II's relation to Scandinavianism. And the Danes were, there were a number of occasions after he became king in 1872 where, where when the Danes were furious with him for speaking of a Scandinavian-German brotherhood and so on and so forth. Because they, they had just been severely defeated by Germany. And, Denmark, it has, to, it has to be remembered that Denmark, after 1871, it virtually existed uh, uh, on German mercy. It existed as long as Germany wanted to. Hmm. And there is someone that I rather want to talk a little bit about as well. During, and we spoke about this briefly in a part one of this mini-series where the being not the for, I wouldn't say foreign minister, but yeah, as we know, that there, there was there two prime ministers in Norway, one in Norway and one in Sweden. Mm. And arguably the least popular job was to be prime minister in Sweden. And one person, and this is kind of personal to me because I live mm. not too far from, he was, he was called Ole Richter, and he, I live not mm. far from his mansion in Rusta, which is kind of, so it feels like a lot of local history for me. I'm going to read his biography yeah. soon. But, yeah. you know, he, he was one of the prime ministers for Sweden. And yes. he had a rather tragic, maybe not tragic life, but he had a tragic ending at least to his life. And of course, someone who will later come into play is, of course, we'd have to talk about this as well, is Bjornsson versus Richter as well. Yeah. Uh, well, he's an interesting character. Uh, I think to, to understand uh, Ulla Richter, you have to understand the nature of Norwegian politics uh, from the 1860s. And um, on the one hand, as you say, well, let's start in 1864. Uh, I think this illustrates uh, Richter quite well. Uh, he, uh, uh, when, when the Norwegian parliament in March 1864 was discussing the question of entering into uh, the Dano-German war on the side of Denmark, that was, that was very much on the agenda. And obviously it was, uh, you know, within the constitutional powers of the government, it was a question of uh, funding on the one hand, and it was a question of military troops on the other hand. And there was a ferocious argument 
in the parliament over whether or not to uh, provide the funding, to provide the troops necessary for Sweden and Norway uh, to join the war on the side of Denmark. And during that debate, Ole Richter, uh, he, he took to the podium and he, uh, he, was a, he was a convinced Scandinavianist at that point. And he made quite a staunch argument uh, in favor of, of joining the war on the side of Denmark. And obviously what he was thinking in terms of was a Scandinavian war of unification. Uh, and his opponent uh, during that debate was uh, uh, Johan Sverdrup who was the leader of the, of the Norwegian opposition, anti-Scandinavianist, uh, anti-unionist, anti-Swedish unionist, uh, uh, a democrat. He wanted to expand the, the franchise and, um, and he sort of became the figurehead uh, of the Norwegian left uh, as that, you know, that would only turn into a political, a modern political party much later, but its origins, uh, were in the 1860s. Uh, and what happened after 1864 was that there was a short period where, where Scandinavianism blossomed in Norway. And then there was a huge fall uh, when, the, when the conflict with Sweden uh, reared its ugly head in 1866-67. Uh, and what happened then was that uh, a fraction, I would say, or, you know, the the uh the the weeds or the seeds of a party a political party you know they embraced uh, norwegian nationalism and among them or i would say even even their leader perhaps at that point at least in an ideological national sense was was bjorn stjerne bjornsson so he was part of that you of course need no introduction I'm sure he needs no introduction. <laughs> I think I could introduce him, but I'm not sure if my introduction would be very pretty. I'm, I'm mm -hmm. quite critical. He was kind of an arsehole, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. He was controversial. Let's put it that way. I would even say he was at at, at certain points irresponsible. Uh, but that's another matter. But uh, as far as Ole Richter went, he was a he was a modest man, and he was seeing this huge gulf opening between what I would call a liberal civil servant oriented sort of a what, what would later become much more conservative party but that's another matter he was he was sort of seeing the gulf between that faction the liberal faction and the more radical nationalistic faction under say Björnson uh, and Johan Sverdrup uh, so he was I think his political aim to begin with was to somehow find a middle way between those factions. Uh, and he failed in doing that. And for a while, he, won he went out of politics, I think, practicing law, and he basically turned his back on it. And then he was enticed to come back and become prime minister, uh, Norwegian prime minister in Sweden, or head of the Norwegian government in Sweden, which... It wasn't necessarily a, a sort of a pariah position. Uh, you, you would have much influence as prime minister in Sweden, Norwegian prime minister in Sweden. But, but it wasn't but, very well looked upon. It was kind of a thrown position, I would say. Exactly. As state in Norway. Exactly. And the, and the problem was that once, you know, the, the conflict between Sweden and Norway, that escalated so much 
it intensified first through the, the Viceroy issue in the early 60s, then through this so-called amalgamation feud, as they called it, from the mid-1860s, which concerned the whole question of institutional integration. So after that, anyone, absolutely anyone, who tried, who either supported the union with Sweden outright or who tried to find some sort of a middle way, they were frowned upon by the Norwegian left. And what happened with Ulla Richter, uh, he was... He was basically severely compromised by Björnson and Sverdrup, so much that he, that he took his own life, ultimately. And he I said, said, said Björnson killed me with his pen, didn't he, at, at, in the suicide letter? I, th- I think Sigurd Ibsen said that, was that uh, yeah. Sverdrup lo- loaded the gun and Björnson fired it. I think yeah. that was his, his way of putting that. And, and obviously Ibsen, he, he was vehemently anti unionist when he was prime minister in Sweden. But it must be remembered that the Norwegian prime ministers in Stockholm, for quite a while, they were either pro-unionist or moderate men. Pro-unionist like Georg Sibban and moderate like Ola Richter. But it was becoming an increasingly difficult position to have. And obviously with the emergence of the, of the left as a political party with introduction of parliamentarism in 1884. Uh, That particular position in Stockholm was increasingly staffed or manned by anti-unionist forces, such as Sigurd Ibsen. And so so that that was also a way of, of, uh, I wouldn't even say reforming the unit. It became a way of undermining the union for, for the Norwegian left party. I don't know if I would call this a fun fact, but there is this story where Richter's wife, she is buried in Rust in, as I mentioned, Rostov, his mansion there today. And you can see his grave, mm. which is quite fantastic to look at, I think. But, mm. you know, his wife found a bullet that he killed himself with, and she used it, if I remember correctly, as, an, as a necklace for the, for the rest of her life, I think. Well, I wouldn't necessarily wear that as a necklace, mm-hmm. but if it if it comes, oh, she, kept, she kept it close. I think you kept the close. You kept it close, or not the necklace. I'm not sure. Yeah, maybe I remember well, it wrongly, but that's if I remember. I think that's something. Yeah, she did something like this. Well, I hope she didn't have to pull it out of Richter's <laughs> brain herself. But <laughs> let's try. Let's hope not. If, if I'm allowed to be rather morbid for a minute. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, he was an interesting character, and uh, but I think it's it's also symptomatic of how conflictual Norwegian politics became mm. after, from the eighteen sixties, and not only in Norway's relation with with Sweden, but also internally uh, the the conflict and the strife between the left and the right as they emerged as political parties, which had. In one sense, it had much to do with the union, but also over over matters that were considered even more crucial, such as such as suffrage, for example. You know, it's it's easy it's easy to think uh, that you know that whole conflict from at least the eighteen nineties was centered on the on the question of the Swedish Norwegian Union. But the 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 most important point to contemporaries until. 1898 and even beyond was the question of suffrage and 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 universal male suffrage was obviously the the, the prime demand 
the primary demand from from the Norwegian left party and uh, and the uh, the the conservatives the, the the right party and when you when you say conservative in a Norwegian context by all other European standards we are talking liberals uh, there there was no such thing as conservatives in Norway really uh, but they advocated the ideology of limited suffrage uh, which you went back to the to the early 19th century, uh, if not if, if not before, and that was the idea that in order to to be qualified to vote and have political influence, you had to be independent. You had to have a certain capacity, either education, you had to be propertied, uh, have a certain income. It was the idea of tying suffrage to qualifications in one way or another. Whereas with it, with the advent of, of modern democratic thought and, and the idea of universal suffrage, you know that was in direct opposition to that. So that's what you find in Norway as well. And it, it, I think we we tend to look at democracy as something inevitable, some modern democracy as something inevitable that had to happen. But as the 19th century clearly shows that it was no necessity. That was deeply and hardly fought over, both through war but also internally in each European state and also in Norway. So, of course, Björnson and Ibsen and someone will, will come back to this because they will become essential later. But there was this minor crisis in the Union in the 80s. So let's talk about the crisis of the Union, what that, that was about. It was, it was a crisis with, I would say, several branches. Uh, I think it's centered really in both countries. Uh, it wasn't necessarily about the union as such, although it was perhaps styled like that in, in Norway, but it, it was basically a question of uh, the powers of the king in each country. And, uh, and in, in Norway, it was a, it was a question of uh, who does the government answer to, the king or the parliament? Uh, so that you know that issue had its origins in the in the in the 1860s as well, and it culminated with uh, with uh, the introduction of parliamentarism in 1884, which ba basically I, I say basically uh, not necessarily legally it wasn't written into the constitution as such, but it made the government answerable to the parliament uh, rather than the king. That was the essence of it. And in Sweden, there was a, uh, the question of basically limiting the king's powers over foreign policy, uh, because there was an impression in Sweden that with, during the Crimean War and during the war uh, between Denmark and Prussia, Prussia-Austria in 1864, that the king had almost single-handedly drawn Sweden into that, into those wars. That was the impression. They conveniently forgot that <laughs> the king was supported by, by several notable politicians as well. So they really wanted to limit the king's powers over, over foreign policy. So in the 1880s, you know, in, in each country, that the, the, there were political conflicts that had very much to do with the powers of the king. And obviously in Norway, the way the, the, the Norwegian left thought was you know an, an additional advantage if you like of limiting uh the king's powers was that it would also weaken the union uh and all and that and you know this this goes back to to the very to the very 
core or the very beginning of the union, that is the common institutions. And obviously, as I mentioned, uh, the foreign ministry was a common institution, uh, but not necessarily the king. Uh, and what and, and what I don't I don't think it has been. It 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 is it is it isn't always properly understood how the institution and I'm not saying the person but the institution of the king worked within the union and uh, and it sounds rather silly but the king was not Swedish Norwegian there was no such thing as a union king the king was Swedish and Norwegian king of Sweden king of Norway respectively. And for all practical purposes, it didn't necessarily matter much uh, until uh, the, 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 the real conflict over the Union as such, that the, the very existence of the Union started in the 1890s. Because then, you know, that turned into a stick with which the Norwegian left could beat the king uh, by limiting the king's powers as Norwegian king they could also weaken the standing of the union, which was basically heavily reliant on the person of the king. And as you know, the, ultimately what they did was to depose the king as, as king of Norway. That was how it ended. But before then, you know, they would try on every crossroad, they would try to undermine that institutional position of the king, such as, for example, it is a banal example, but it goes to show how the line of argument, the line of thinking worked. Uh, in 1898, I think, uh, a number of Swedish officers had taken part in a Norwegian military exercise. And there was nothing new in that. Uh, Norwegian officers had joined in on Swedish military exercises and vice versa, almost throughout the entire duration of the Union. Uh, but <clears throat> they had been allowed into a fortress, and I can't remember where, uh, and the Norwegian leftist opposition, they, they got word of that. And they asked them <laughs> the very pertinent question, well, who commanded the Swedish officers into a Norwegian fortress? Who gave the command that allowed them to enter that fortress? Uh, because surely the king of Norway cannot give orders to Swedish officers on Norwegian soil. And obviously, the king of Sweden cannot order Swedish officers into a Norwegian fortress. <laughs> so it goes to show that you know the, the the technical aspect of this argument. But you know, so once once incidents like it's a tricky question to the, answer. It is. Well, the answer is obvious that the the king had no right to command the Swedish officers or allow them into that fortress. The answer was very simple, and that was the main point of the opposition once, you know, they leaked that to the press. And, you know, that was that was filed as, look at what the King of Sweden is doing to us. He, he is having secret plans there. And, you know, this was a time where, where you had to, you had to take into account the, the, the slight possibility that there could be a military conflict between Norway and Sweden. It wasn't very likely, but after 1895, it was something on which the Norwegian opposition, the, le the left party, that they had to take into account. So that was an, an additional reason for them not wanting Swedish officers to, to enter into Norwegian fortresses. 
of which several were erected uh, in the 1890s. So it also goes to show how conflict-ridden the relationship between Sweden and Norway had become at that point. And I would go as far as to say that uh, if if this the Norwegian left party, I wouldn't say that they deliberately were set on a course to dissolution of the union from the early 1890s, but they were doing their damnest to undermine the very fundament of the union uh, with a view to it perhaps collapsing in the longer run. And they ultimately succeeded in doing that. It was a very systematic approach in terms of discrediting the union uh, in public, undermining its symbolic functions, so, such as the, the, the flag issue, which is, it, seems, it seems a minor matter today, but it was enormously important to Norwegian nationalism, get, getting rid of that herring salad, as they call it, the Swedish-Norwegian Union flag, which was basically the, the, the Swedish and uh, Norwegian flag, respectively, with, uh, with, with a tiny, tiny little hint of each other's colours in the upper left corner. So they, so they got rid of that in 1898, called it the clean Norwegian flag. So that was a symbolic undermining of the union as well. And then the real stick uh, they found with which to beat the whole union, that was the question of the foreign ministry, which yeah. for, for all intents and purposes what was, was the only common institution. And on, on the one hand, that the, the Norwegian grievance was legitimate in the sense that the Norwegians felt that the that the consuls, the consular institution, wasn't really taking care of Norwegian interests the way they they would like, and it, that reflected that Swedish and Norwegian economic interests they were for the most part uh, vastly different. Uh, there wasn't much economic commonality at all. In 1895, Sweden even abolished that, you know, the, the, the customs union, uh, the limited customs union that they had. So the, the, the Norwegian grievance in that respect was legitimate. But obviously, like, for example, Sigurd Ibsen, son of the author, uh, who was prime minister in Stockholm for, for a few years, he saw that issue, the consular issue, uh, as, a, as a way to undermine the whole institution of the common foreign ministry. And the line of thinking was that, well, if Norway acquired its own consular institution, consular offices, that would serve as a stepping stone to acquiring its own foreign ministry. And if Norway acquired its own foreign ministry, well, what would then be left of the union? Then you would only have the person of the king left, and there would, there would basically be, be nothing left. So that was their line of, of thought, their strategy, if you like. Uh, because, know, you know, you know in the, Norway did have some minor posts in the foreign ministry, like I believe Denmark was one of them, but nothing. No, in no real other countries with major powers, after Great Britain, uh, France, or they didn't weren't allowed to have foreign ministers in one of the great powers. Uh, well, actually, actually, Norway did. There weren't too many of them, but there were some. Uh, mm. Frederick Duer was one. He was ambassador uh, to Paris, I think. Mm. Vienna as well at some point. He wasn't very talented, I have to say, but it was still a Norwegian manning that office. And I think there were a few others as well. But yeah, for the most part, the Swedes would man the foreign ministry 
the Swedes would man uh, the the legations uh, in in, in uh, foreign countries and particularly the great powers. And what was more, and this was obviously a source of friction with the Norwegian as well, uh, the Swedish foreign ministry, its diplomatic uh, corps, and 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 the Swedish foreign ministers, they were not exclusively but disproportionately uh, aristocrats. And there was no such thing as an aristocracy in Norway. And the, the rather Norwegians, they were fearful of the Swedish aristocracy. And as I mentioned previously, uh, the, the, the Swedish conservatives, uh, who were for the most part aristocrats, uh, who sympathized with the Scandinavianist movement from the 1850s, they, they were thinking in terms of Swedish expansionism, I united Scandinavia as a greater Sweden, which wasn't unlike what Piedmont did with Italy and Prussia with Germany. Uh, but obviously that scared the Norwegians, whereas the Danes were either ignorant uh, or so desperate as to even accept that. Uh, as some, whatever way they could have a Scandinavian Union, as long as it, it, they acquired support against Germany. So they were perhaps willing to accept that. But the Norwegians were deeply resentful, deeply fearful of the Swedish aristocracy. And as it happened, the Swedish aristocracy manned the foreign offices. So that played into it as well. So there were all sorts of conflicts playing into that question of the of, of, of the consular offices and the foreign ministry, cultural, social, political. So it sort of became a melting pot uh, of everything, some symbolic, some very real in terms of grievances, but it ultimately became an issue that it couldn't it couldn't be handled. I think by the say by 1904, I think everyone realized that that the union uh, itself was doomed. The question was rather how how to dissolve the union in, in, in a proper way, and that that isn't necessarily easy, because it is it wasn't it wasn't only a Swedish and Norwegian matter. It, the great the great powers would probably have a say in that as well. No, no, I, I, we don't want to get to the dissolvement of the union, the union soon because it talked quite a while now, but. Um, something, something I do want to mention as well, and I feel like they are important to mention, is not Henrik Ibsen, but his son, who would very much be successful in following his father's footsteps in politics, yeah. and he would marry, as we talked about before, Bjarstein and Bjornsson's daughter, and he would marry mm. into his family, and there would be, there's caricatures of them to those two, those two in in the newspapers, of course, but you know they were they were quite dynamic duo, if you will. Mm. Yeah, well, you have Sigurd Ibsen, who was, I think, he was, in a sense, and it's quite ironic. He's, I wouldn't say he's forgotten, but he's not as well known as he probably should be because he was absolutely pivotal in, in, I would say as a strategist behind all the issues that ultimately led to the end of the Union. He was vehemently anti-unionist, which is perhaps ironic considering the Scandinavianism uh, of his father, uh, Henry Gibson. Uh, and, uh, well, we'll skip Henry Gibson. Uh, there's much to be said about him, but let's talk about his son. So his son, he was sort of a, in one way, a grey eminence uh, in the left movement, uh, on the on the other hand, he he was prime minister in Stockholm for a number of years, 
And, and again, I think following he, in his father's footsteps. Yeah, in, in a sense. Uh, and he was well-educated. He, he was a very smart man. Uh, and I think I would probably go as far as to say that, well, the union, it would have ended one way or another, but I'm not sure if it would have ended or, or the way it did or been dissolved the way it did without uh, Sigurd Ibsen. And, and his connection with Bjornsson as well in that respect is obvious. It, it, it's, it's quite apparent that those two uh, fed off each other. And, and Bjornsson, you know, he would, he would go as far as to publish attacks on Sweden in Russian newspapers. And he was obviously accused of being a pro-Russian uh, spy in a sense, you know, basically working to promote Russia's expansion to the Atlantic Sea, as I mentioned previously. You know, he would, that would play into the Russophobia uh, of Swedish and Norwegian conservatives, or all, all the Swedes come to think of it. Uh, so there was Ibsen and Björnsson, they were sort of a vehement anti-unionist axis who were in the, in the sort, they, in a way, they became the ideological core, I think, of the anti-unionist uh, left movement and left party. Did, and didn't Björnsson import- change his mind eventually and became a unionist later? I think at least after the dissolution of the union. Now, uh, Björnsson, he was, I, I think, I... I, I, I I refer to him as an irresponsible character. Mm. And by that, I mean that he wasn't always thinking of the consequences. Of he, what he, he was, was kind of a wild card in a sense. He was a wild card. And it was sometimes when he, in, 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 a, in an intellectual sense, if you like, or a political sense, sobered up, when he had second thoughts, that was usually when something had happened. And mm. uh, it came to one such point. Uh, actually, it was after the dissolution of the Union. Uh, and uh, he made a remark that has later been attributed to, to, the, to the first foreign minister of the independent Norway, but it was Björnson who said it that, well, our foreign policy now is to have none, which is basically the, the small state approach to international politics. A Danish diplomat said the same thing after the Napoleonic Wars, after Denmark had lost Norway and, you know, almost was partitioned between Sweden and Prussia. He said that Danish foreign policy is to have none. And the same Björnsson said after 1905, the dissolution of the Union. And that contrasts with with Björnsson uh, on, on, on the 17th of May, the Norwegian National Day in 1867 who stood on a podium somewhere, banging his chest, saying that, oh, there is a strength in our tribe, and we are not afraid of demise and annihilation. That is for the Scandinavianists and the Unionists. We have a strength in our tribe, and that is the Norwegians alone, as if Norway could play the role of a great power and survive on its own in international politics. And it's it's not really relevant to the episode, I must confess, but that kind of fun fact about, about Björnson, and I'm sure you know this, but in when when Austria Hungary, Björnson was actually advertising quite quite a lot and was corresponding to Austria Hungary for the independence as well. And he was yeah. quite pro Hungarian independence from Austria. Obviously it was, and you know th- th- it's, it, it worked that way, I would say, throughout the 19th century in, in the sense that oppositionals, they would correspond with each other, they would learn from each other, they would encourage each other. Uh, and in the same way as you find 
say Norwegian separatists to call it that, but you know they would correspond with Hungarians, obviously. Uh, and in certain respects, you know the Scandinavianists they would correspond with with Italian and German unionists. So they learned of each other from each other. They 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 fed off each other. Uh, and Björnson had every reason to encourage uh, Hungarian separatism because this was also a matter of creating an international climate that could be favorable to separatist movements. And it must be remembered that Europe at this point in time, that the, the great powers, even though they they didn't cooperate the way had done, they had done up until the Crimean War, <laughs> quite the contrary, but they still had the final say on European matters. So it was a case of making them receptive to the idea of territorial change. Uh, so it, the, the more separatist movements you could fire up, the, the better for the Norwegians. And I think that was Björnson's way of reasoning. But he had a fiery mind, that's for sure. Hmm. So, of course, we have to come to an end eventually. And let's talk about the, well, the, how the abolition when was it a smooth abolition of the union or how was it kind of chaotic abolition? I think it was as smooth as it could be. Uh, I think much more has been made out of that than it perhaps should be. Now, I think everyone in Sweden and Norway realized from from at least the spring of 1904 that the, the, the union was coming to an end one way or another. The question was how? And as with the, as I as I mentioned the the issue of the of the viceroy, the the Swedish issue with that was not necessarily that the Norwegian abolished that office. It was rather the way they did it, and it was it was really the same with how the how the union was dissolved uh, because the Norwegian Parliament, you know, this was a crisis of of a union matters, obviously, and in the end, uh, you know, the the the, the Norwegian government resigned and it was the constitutional duty of the king to form another another government that would obviously answer to the parliament but it was still the king's duty to form a new government but the king's problem was that no norwegian wanted to take up a position as minister in a new government which rendered the king unable to form a new government so the parliament decreed on the on the 7th of june uh, 1905, that, well, the king has failed in his constitutional duty to form uh, a new government. So as such, he has ceased to function as king of Norway. So that was really the end, the end of the union as far as the Norwegians were concerned. Uh, uh, but as you can expect, the Swedes were slightly offended by that, that the parliament had unilaterally dissolved the union by, by deposing the king. Or rather, so, so the Swedes wanted a say in that. Uh, and, uh, and obviously it raised a few minor issues that needed to be negotiated, uh, such as uh, uh, you know, regulation of a, a few rivers along the border, uh, you know, a question of rain there, cross-border rain there in the north. A few minor issues, fishing issues. Uh, in the mouth of the Oslo Fjord and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. But all minor issues uh, that had to be resolved. So at one point, the Swedish Parliament basically ac accepted what had happened, and they agreed to negotiating, which is what the, the a Swedish and a Norwegian delegation set out to do 
uh, in the autumn, in September of 1905. Now, much has been made of uh, the threat of war during those negotiations. And there was, there was a certain danger insofar as we had come to the point that uh, the use of military force required planning and early mobilization. So the military in both countries were basically pressing, uh, pressing for, for military measures to be taken, while the politicians negotiating uh, to, to basically dissolve the union, they were kind of holding back. And there were, there were a couple of points where it, it could have spun out of control. I don't think there was really any danger of that, but some would have said that of 1914 and the outbreak of the First World War as well, which in part related to the same issue of military planning and military mobilization. But it was resolved in a, in a rather orderly manner, I would say, uh, in terms of negotiations and, and Swedish-Norwegian uh, relations. Uh, but uh, the, the great powers, they also wanted a say in that. And uh, the Norwegians... For some bizarre reason, and I'm still not sure why, they have led themselves to believe that the great powers, and Britain in particular, uh, supported Norway, uh, which, which is absurd. <laughs> they, they didn't support Norway. What, what was important to the great powers? They, they too had realized that the, that the Swedish-Norwegian Union was doomed. So what was important to them was that the Union be dissolved in a orderly, quiet manner, uh, and above all, without any war uh, in, in, in Scandinavia, which could spiral into a major war between the great powers, which they really wanted to avoid at that point in time. So as long as the Swedes and the Norwegians behaved well and settled their issues, the great powers, you know, they were, they were not supporting any party. They just wanted this issue to be, to be resolved in, 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 in a decent manner. And it was ultimately. So there was no need for great power intervention. Uh, only that, you know, the Norwegians, they would send uh, unofficial diplomats to, uh, to, the, to the European uh, capitals, uh, Fritjof Nansen being one, and they would, tell, <laughs> they would tell lies about Sweden, demanding that the Norwegians tear down their historic border fortresses and whatnot. And, uh, and uh, well, King Edward of Britain, he listened to Nansen, but was promptly put in place by his, by his prime minister. But uh, somehow the government in Paris and St. Petersburg, they bought into the Norwegian lie. So they issued notes to Sweden telling the Swedes to please respect the Norwegian historic <laughs> fortresses. And some other Norwegians have interpreted that as active support, but it wasn't. It was a rather embarrassing diplomatic case for France and Russia. Whereas the Germans... And the British, you know, the, the, their governments and the German Kaiser, they paid attention to what was going on and they knew perfectly well that there wasn't really a danger of war breaking up in Scandinavia. So their message to, to, to the Swedes and Norwegians was basically get on with it, get it done, get it done in a proper manner, and then we'll figure out how, how to handle that afterwards. So it's less, perhaps less dramatic than it would seem or than it has been made out to be by the Norwegians in particular, who have constructed a narrative of the Norwegians, you know, sharpening their swords for years and erecting for fortresses and being ready to take on the Swedes. And it was so and so close to war breaking out. And if war had broken out, Norway would have won over Sweden and conquered the whole country and what have you. 
Uh, it's been made much more dramatic by, by historians than it really was. Of course, we are going to end soon, but I want to discuss a few topics again. And that was, of course, sure. what, would Norway be a monarchy or a republic? And how close, very really close to be a republic at this point? Or was there obvious that it was going to be a monarchy in the end? And of course, what, no. why, why did we... Because we were as well, we were close to having a Swedish king on the throne, but they, they weren't really interested, so we ended up with the Danish king. Sorry, not, well, that, not king, yeah. but we ended up with a king from Denmark. That, that too is really one of the, one of the myths, much like the, the danger of war in 1905. Now, it was insofar as the great powers had any condition uh, or, or in any way interfered, or they didn't really inter interfere either. Uh, everyone knew at that point in time, and it must be remembered that monarchy still mattered. Kings had power. Kings and Kaisers still had power at that point. Uh, so everyone knew that there was no question of Norway becoming a republic. That was the stance of all of the great powers, even France, uh, a republic in his own right. There was a clear message going out of Paris, and that was, we do not consider uh, republics as an article of export. So France, too, uh, was very clear that Norway uh, was to be a, a monarchy. And obviously, there, there were republicans uh, in Norway. I think Bjornsson was one of them, uh, unsurprisingly. Uh, and somehow... Uh, the, the Norwegian government, led by Christian Mikkelsen, had to appease uh, this fraction, if you like. So that was really the whole idea behind the referendum. Uh, and as, as for the referendum, it was the second referendum in Norway, 1905. And each was held in a manner that resembles countries uh, Norwegians normally wouldn't like to compare themselves with, to put it that way. So there was no question really of Norway becoming a monarchy. What was the question on the other hand was, well, who would become king? And, uh, and, and the throne was quite rightly offered to a Swedish prince, but that was really a token. Uh, everyone knew that the Bernadots wouldn't accept that. Uh, Why weren't they interested in, that, that would kind of continue the dynastic aspect of ruling Norway, right? If they were, if they chose to accept the Norwegian throne, then that dynasty would kind of still have a hold on Norway, wouldn't they? Uh, no, not really, because the, the Bernadots, like everyone else, had realized that there was no future uh, in, the, in, in the Union. And on the other I mean, hand... I mean, not, know, the, not the Union, but if they chose a king on, in North, Swe Swedish Kenyan for Norway, and not, well, the, not the Danish ones, they would have still had, you know, a Bernadotte on the throne and kind of continue their dynastic claims, if you will. Yeah, in one, yeah. In one respect, you can you can argue that, but what 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 must be remembered is that the uh, the way King Oscar II, who was head of the House of Bernadotte, the way he was deposed was enormously insulting uh, from from a dynastic point of view. Uh, so that in itself would would preclude any chance really of the Bernadotte accepting that. Uh, and the Norwegians knew that. <laughs> that that's really why they offered that. That well, it, it was really a tactical move, uh, more so than anything else, from the from the side of the Norwegians. It was sort of demonstrating to the outer world that 
it was an outstretched hand. It was a, it was a message to the world that we we will be a monarchy and we are we, we we will try and reconcile with the dynasty and the Swedes by offering the throne to the prince of Bernadotte to the prince of the house of Bernadotte. And they, the Norwegians knew perfectly well that there was no way the Bernadots would accept that. But the Bernadots, you know, they they were they were smarter than that because as long as the offer stood, uh, they had a bargaining chip. Uh, so rather than re rejecting the offer outright, and King Oscar wanted to do that, you know, he his stance was, I, I know there is no way, but his ministers told him that. Well, let, let's let's. Let's not reply to that just yet, because it provides us with a bargaining chip. So it, it made life difficult for the Norwegians for a few months until the, the Swedes and the Bernadots accepted and, and, you know, the, and, the, and the Swedish parliament accepted the, the, the outcome of the negotiations on the 26th of November. And only then could the Norwegians proceed to elect their king, if you like. And, but the king was elected. He was appointed. question of the outcome uh if if even in the event that the that the majority of the norwegians had voted against the monarchy uh <laughs> it would still have been a monarchy anyway because mm. the great powers wouldn't accept anything else and so so it is also a reminder to the norwegians that what the norwegians think isn't always as important <laughs> as still is today uh it, and it still is today. I think we have to remind ourselves sometimes that uh, when the Norwegians uh, stand up and speak, it is not as though the entire world shuts up and listens. It's, <laughs> it's not the way it works. Neither now, nor, nor in 1905. Thank you so much for coming on. I think we've done a round of rounded affair. We talked for quite a while today. So yes, Thanks for having me. <laughs> Before I'm you go, they have on. That's fine. Do you have anything you want to promote that in social media where people might find you if they have under contact if people have any questions or links you want to, be to put in the description below? Yeah, they can just look up my profile page at the website of the Norwegian University Defence College, as they call themselves these days. And there is an email address there. It might even be a phone number for those who are so inclined. They can find me there. Mm. Thank you so much again for coming on. It's been a pleasure to talk with you. My name is Alan. We are available on Instagram, Twitter, and the world at age 12. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, wherever you can find podcasts. And if you are on Apple Podcasts, consider writing a review of this podcast. That would help us a lot. Also, check out some other episodes. I'm sure you're going to find something that you hopefully like. And please like, share, and subscribe. And I will see you next time. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.